Stealing my nerves, I walked down the graveled drive, hoping there would be nothing in the way of a lookout. After I had taken but a few steps into the calm shadows, the sounds of urban civilization, the highway noises, and lawnmowers disappeared. Beyond a fence to my right, a horse moved slowly through sunlight-dappled shade. It was as if I had entered another world, secluded, peaceful, and secure from the jarring clamour of the twentieth century. It was such a place, I realised, as I had been unconsciously seeking as a refuge ever since leaving the farm in Sussex, and the house, when it suddenly came in view, meshed perfectly with that feeling. It was a large, rambling place built in an old style, largely of grey, native rock, most of the walls covered with ivy and other climbing vines. How, I asked myself, could this quiet, cool, delightful place be no more than a façade for the evil of Professor Moriarty? Still my luck held, for as I approached the house I remained unchallenged. Nor did this change as I turned from the drive where it passed by the building. I mounted a few steps, crossed a small porch, and entered through a door that stood ajar. Not a sound had yet disturbed me, neither from the world I had left behind, nor from the house itself or its environs. If my faith in a supreme being had not been destroyed years earlier by the horrors of two world wars and threats of a third, I would have thought my success thus far sure proof that God was on my side. The door opened into a short and very narrow hallway, which in turn led into a sitting-room with a stone fireplace and a window that looked out onto the porch I had just crossed. The room was empty. However, the far end of the room was a wide archway, beyond which was a dining-room with a large ornate table set as though for a banquet, and standing next to the table, her back to me, was Lily. She was quite alone, and seemed to be absorbed in an examination of something on the table. I experienced a rush of relief at her obvious safety, and I called out her name in a low voice. She turned to me and smiled, but it was a troubled smile, and her face bore the signs of tension and worry. I thought, too, that she seemed sad, as though aware of a loss of something important to her. "'Come here, John,' she said. "'Everything is all right, you see.' A multitude of feelings were jumbled together in me as I stepped up to her and took her hands in mine. Relief, still, but also puzzlement at the sadness in her tone, matching the look upon her face. Disappointment, I must confess, at the realization that, if indeed all were well, then Moriarty must not be here, and so I could not hope to capture him after all. And only last of all, sudden surprise of her use of my correct name, John rather than James. It was this, as much as the faint sound behind me, and her involuntary glance over my left shoulder that made me turn around. But my response was too late. I felt a terrible blow on the back of my head, a momentary crashing, splitting pain, and then all sensation disappeared, but for a momentary floating feeling, and then the hard smack of the floor against my cheek. Before consciousness left me entirely, I heard a dry, soft, well-remembered, and much-hated voice say, "'Well done, Lily. Now that the pilot-fish is in our nets, the shark must soon follow.' Then all faded away."